Yeah, I struggle with it, but I, it's such a, it feels like really worthwhile to investigate. Oh, sorry, y'all, my dog just knocked down my microphone. One second. <laughs> <laughs> like, fully knocked it onto the <laughs> Meet your new host. Meet your new host. <laughs> come on, come on. Look at that BIPOC dog. <laughs> <laughs> um, latte is black. Thank you very much. Scorekeepers, welcome to episode nine of The Score. So happy to have you. As always, I am Rocky Jones, EDI Director at Minnesota Opera. I'm here with Paige Reynolds, who is our Civic Engagement Manager, and Lee Bynum, um, the Vice President of Impact. How are y'all doing? Hello, everybody. Hello. (laughs) Hello, hello, hello. Pretty yes. good. Happy Pretty Wednesday, good. Happy as Wednesday. always. <laughs> as always, we are coming to you from the land of the Dakota, colonially known as the Twin <laughs> Cities. <laughs> and I have to say, it is a lovely day. Yeah. <laughs> it really is. Yeah, I can't complain. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm feeling particularly good because I had a very spiritual experience last night. Oh, did you? <laughs> I did. I did. I, so as you both know, you know, and as we've talked about on this podcast, I, I wonder if people get sick of like me being like, oh, that's some Aquarius nonsense or whatever. <laughs> 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 oh my God, he's such a Gemini. <laughs> but like when I was a kid, my mom had a side hustle after my parents' divorce of like reading people's natal charts. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's so great. I've always been like, you know, very, you know, sort of aware of, you know, astrological things in fact you know my birthday december 2nd my mom would say when i was a little kid like there's a a a constellation that was in the sky when you were born and it means that you are going to live a life of of wealth and and power and fame (laughs) (laughs) funny story i'm born on the same day as britney spears (laughs) So she wasn't wrong. <laughs> it just was for someone else. <laughs> just but wasn't anyway. in the stars for you. It just wasn't in the stars. It was in the stars. <laughs> and I guess anyone could have gone up and, 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 and claimed it. I don't know what Brittany like, did, what was in her, you know, what, what, what she was, you know, who she talked to. <laughs> and I just didn't get that person's number. Um... Anyway, so during during the whole, you know, the Pando, I <laughs> downloaded TikTok, and Generation Z apparently is very into astrology, so I got back into it yes. again, and I was like, I actually want, like, a professional to actually sit down and read this chart with me, because, like, I don't know what all of this, the moon conjuncts with <laughs> Jupiter in the seventh house, <laughs> trines <laughs> Mars, I don't know what that means. Um, and so I was able to get an appointment with um, and I was like, and I want, I was like, and I want somebody black. 
<laughs> that's that's okay. the lack of knowledgeable. That's the criteria. <laughs> and so I started following this woman in New York, Mecca Woods, who apparently is renowned. Mm-hmm. And Paige, I know you follow her too. Yes, I'm a fan. And the like. This was like in March, and you know she is just booked and busy for like the next year. And I was able to actually get an appointment with her for June, just something like dropped out of the the clear blue sky and it it all feels just like faded because like you know i'm a sagittarius sun and a gemini rising and for the last year and a half like we've been having eclipses in sagittarius and gemini so that's why all these like Mm -hmm. getting a new job Mm -hmm. and getting married Mm -hmm. and deciding to go on this fitness journey like and she was like yeah there was an eclipse on november 30th like in sagittarius and i was like oh well that's funny because on december 6th i decided to start this fitness journey and it's actually like stuck (laughs) (laughs) and it it, and she was like and it's actually kind of probably like why you're here because you're like just in this period of like making big major life changes and so I just say this because I just recommend it to everyone, <laughs> you know, just to go follow her. And it was just like, it was such like a, it was like a big warm hug. Oh. <laughs> and it was just like, it was so nice. Um, she was really funny though. She was like, you know that book Shonda Rhyme, like that Shonda Rhyme's book, The the Year of Yes? And I was yeah. like, mm-hmm. And she was like, this is actually looking at your chart, your year of no. Because what you've been doing is you're just like looking at all the things in your life that you don't want and you're just like, no, no, no. And I was like, I have. I actually have been doing that. (laughs) And she's like, keep going. Do it. Just keep doing it and relax about it. Apparently, I'm a Virgo Mars, so you know, relaxing is not my forte, she actually said. (laughs) (laughs) She was like, just relax. I know I'm saying that to a Virgo Mars, so it's not your forte, but just relax. (laughs) It was was just a fun experience. So I recommend it to everyone, but I'm just feeling good today. I'm feeling like I'm on like, I'm feeling like I'm, I'm on a good path. Yay! Well, first of all, con- congrats on even getting on her books and how's it feel to be Thank God's you. favorite? It must feel great. I'm, uh, you know, blessed and highly favored. I don't know what else I can say. That woman stays booked, but I feel like with like readings like that, even if you feel like so much better after, even if you don't understand everything like right away, I've had like a burst chart reading and something didn't click till months later. Did you feel so much better afterwards? It's like, that makes it worth it. You feel clearer. And, and I, and I said that to her too. I was like, this was so worth it. Cause like, I mean, y'all, it was not cheap. Um, (laughs) (laughs) but it was completely worth it. And, and like, she, like it explains so many things. Like even just like, like, you know, every man I've ever seriously dated has been a Scorpio, including my husband. And she was like, yeah, because that's what, because your Jupiter is in Scorpio in the fifth house. That's what you need. That's the energy that that you are looking for. And it's just like, oh, okay. And like, and I have to. The house is like the house of like creativity and fun, pleasure, love, present, fun, all of that. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. And she's like, that's, that's what you need because like you've just got a lot of like, you know, I mean, I've got tons of like Sagittarius and the sixth house going on. Um, but like, I also have like my Capricorn, Venus, and my Virgo Mars, which are both like 
I'm, very <laughs> 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 I'm so serious and it's just like yeah you need to just like chill out and have some fun hmm. so, have you ever had anything like that lee uh readings uh mm-hmm. yes quite a few actually and i'm i'm curious if miss woods mentioned Paige or me or she was <laughs> mostly just focused on you I mean, I could go back and ask. I have her email. <laughs> she wasn't like, I see that you might have some problems with your co-workers in your no, chart. No, 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 no. <laughs> but, I mean, I guess maybe kind of tangentially because it was like, you know, what I need to be doing right now is focusing on, like, the creative pursuits that make me happy. Mm. Like this podcast, mm. you know? Okay. And I consider this podcast an outlet for my creativity that I'm really enjoying. Um, so, you know, just really leaning into it was basically her advice. It's great advice. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I, I interpret that as, like, this is a good thing. Yeah, I, I do too. I, I feels like it. it. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we should actually um, devote a future podcast to something astrological, um, because every time I share with folks, I have a lot of people in my life who know a lot about it. Then I have a couple of other people in my life who are more than a little bit interested, right? And they are frequently asking me all these questions. And some questions I know answers to, and a lot of them I don't. So I wonder if there's a little bit of a some information sharing we could do. Maybe there's an upcoming interview with someone we could bring in to share some stuff with our listeners. I would love that. That'd be cool. Yeah. I wonder what's also in the, if they could tell us what's in the stars for opera. What was what was going on right. in the stars when opera was formed? Where is it now? Could, is could they look at a chart for the Minnesota Opera? Could you look at like I our chart? Could. I, bet they could. I bet they could. I mean, we know when we were founded. Yeah, they absolutely could. And I'd be curious if you know anybody back then knew that this year we'd be putting the work of a black man on the main stage. Like, is that a thing that was in the stars? Because it's certainly you know pretty sensational from my standpoint. And, you know, I, I like when my worlds can sort of combine in this way and I can think about <laughs> one thing relative to another. It's, you know, less taxing on the brain, I suppose. <laughs> True. <laughs> Easier when it's all connected. And that's the thing. Like, I mean, it's funny because, like, also, you know, hashtag self-care, you know, I talk a lot about, like, how I am in therapy and I'm, you know, Loving it. (laughs) Um, But, you know, I'll talk to him occasionally and I'll be like, yeah, I don't know if you're like into like horoscopes or astrology or whatever. And he's like, I'm not, but I'm into what it means for you. (laughs) (laughs) I love that answer. Sounds like a married person answer, honestly. Yeah, no, and he, he is he is married and has been for quite some time. So I was like, I like that. That's very diplomatic. I love but, it. But it, 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 it is just like, you know, I love like the way like those two worlds intersect. And so like, yeah, like having astrology like intersect with like, you know, our work life, our artistic life, our company, the work that we're doing around EDI. 
hell, why not? Yeah, you know, absolutely. every every little bit of information I feel like helps. And if it's like the universe and I guess I'm gonna ge- geometry, I was surprised by how much geometry is involved. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> actually like you have to know some things about <laughs> about degrees angles and angles and, and some mathematical calculations yeah which is things that i did not study as a theater major i was about to say <laughs> no no it stopped right around trigonometry for me <laughs> but it does tie nicely into that um card reading scene in Carmen, you know, so this is all, this actually is connected, however tangentially. Oh yeah, I guess we should put in a little plug, like, we've just announced our season, so uh, go to mnopera.org and check that out and subscribe. Yes, yes. Because Carmen's on there. Carmen is on there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and I... The uh, black opera that, um, or opera by a black composer that Lee was referring to earlier was an anonymous lover uh, by the Chevalier St. George. So I'm really excited about that one. I'm super excited. (laughs) Carmen too. I like Carmen, but I'm very excited for the Chevalier. (laughs) I think anonymous lover might be my favorite opera that I've never seen or heard. So really? I, wow. I, wow. I've only uh, seen and heard snippets of it, but everything I've heard, I've. it was something that I feel like I wish that I had studied this in college because I think I would have gotten mm. a lot out of the, the counterpoint and the balance with some of the other pieces that I spent quite a bit of time with in college. So I'm, I am super excited to see what it all looks like on its legs. Yeah, I'm super excited about it. I am not heard any of the music from it but like just the idea that you know the sort of the quote-unquote black Mozart and we are (laughs) we're finally you know getting to like showcase his music um it's just it's super exciting and super dope and I hope it is just the first in of many um, (laughs) of many BIPOC uh composers um, <laughs> that we have on our stage. Did you like what I did there? I see what you did there. I caught it. So that elegant segue <laughs> <laughs> brings us to, you know, a topic that we had talked about on an earlier episode, but um, we had uh, a big old technical snafu. Um, and so we weren't able to, uh, to include that, um, that conversation in an earlier episode, but we wanted to revisit it because it keeps coming up again and again. And that is around the term BIPOC, um, and how, I don't know what the, what's the word I'm looking for? Cumbersome? <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps <laughs> to say that the least. term can be clunky. Yeah. It, it's not um, mellifluous in any way. Like it doesn't. It doesn't sound good. I don't like how it looks when I see it written, and it never really feels like it's doing the work that I want it to do, other than being a catch-all, right? Like it working on the EDI side 
I frequently find myself in a situation where I need to have a series of terms that I can go to that cover um, a number of groups that are not white, marginalized, underrepresented, et cetera, right? And I tend to go for people of color. I, I feel like its historical framing is one that I'm a little bit more familiar with and, and I feel like I have a little bit more fluency um, with exactly what it signifies to broad groups of people. Um, and that's just because I am a person who loves words and I you know, have followed the use of the term from its original usage in the 19th century through um, more recent iterations. And I was thinking about this um, when I was listening to the podcast where, Paige, you were talking about um, the Kambahi River Collective and thinking about at contemporaneously the use of the term women of color, which dates back also mm -hmm. to the late 70s. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. and, and that's the, the spirit in which I use people of color, even if I don't actively identify as a person of color. I am a yeah. black person, in case you didn't know. Um, and that's the, the term that I'm the most comfortable with. But I just don't like BIPOC. Like, I, I don't like it. I, I, politically, I feel like it's off, right? Um, I don't like the weird separating out of histories. And I would feel comfortable in a different way, maybe with IPOC, if we were saying indigenous and people of color, in the sense that indigeneity is a, is, you know, can be described as a characteristic of people who are not racialized in the same way. But even that, like, my preference always is just to list the groups that I'm talking about, seeing people, naming them, saying what it is. Can, you can't always do that in a, in a paragraph for work, but that is my preference. Um, but boy, do I not like the word. Well, I think for those, I mean, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably know what BIPOC stands for. But in, <laughs> <laughs> but in case you don't. In case it's in your case, first episode. In case it's your first episode. Um, we're, we're talking about uh, the term uh, BIPOC, B-I-P-O-C, Black, Indigenous, People of Color, sometimes Black, Indigenous, and People of Color, sometimes Black, Indigenous, and other People of Color. And this conversation really got started between the three of us because of an article um, that Lee shared with us in uh, Newsweek that came out in April um, by Christopher McDonald De Dennis, who is the Chief Diversity Officer at Massachusetts College of Liberal Arts, and Andrea Plaid, who's an author whose work on race, gender, sex, and sex Sexuality has appeared in places like Vogue.com and In These Times on these issues um, and Rewire. And basically, you know, they, they argue that, you know, the acronym is very well-intentioned and it's uh, designed to extract and emphasize the particular histories and experiences of Black people um, and um, the many indigenous na nations here in the United States. Um, and to really sort of, you know, sometimes there, you know, the, the, the term, you know, people of color can be sort of this catch-all that sort of, you know, tends to obfuscate the issues that concern black people um, and indigenous people or even sort of um, anti-blackness in other um, communities of color. Um, but yeah, I... I tend to agree with you, Lee, because it's just, it, you know, as 
you know, I, th I think they reference the Audre Lorde quote in this article about, you know, the, there's no hierarchy of oppression. Mm -hmm. um, and that really sort of is the thing that, that resonates with me about it, because I, it just, especially in 2021, you know, of course, like, you know, everything that has been happening, you know, in the last year when it comes to black folks in America, I mean, the last 400 years, but specifically, <laughs> <laughs> you know, the last year, you know, George, and, and especially in this particular community, Dante Wright and George mm -hmm. Floyd and, you know, it, 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 what just happened in Uptown, you know, a couple mm -hmm. of weeks ago. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, that is that, you know, it's, it's, it's important to spotlight. It's also just as important to shine a light on everything that's happening in indigenous communities, the way that right. these oil and gas companies are just continuing to drive pipelines through sacred lands, all of the social, medical, economic upheaval that is just continually happening on, you know, in, uh, native territories um, and reservations across the country. But also what I what makes me kind of skeevy is just like in 2021, just everything that's happening with our Latinx siblings, you know, especially down at the southern border, the steep, you know, rise of violence, um, incidents against, you know, the AAPI community here in the United States. And it feels like it, it, it erases that. And I, and I understand the, you know, the good intentions behind it. But it just, I don't know, it, it, it just, it makes me feel kind of like, well, why can't we just be just much more specific in our language, you yeah. know? And, and yeah. I feel like it, it, it I don't want to say, you know, it's like you and I, Lee, we had a, a conversation with the actor T. Michael Rambo mm -hmm. yesterday. And I was talking about the community, the community, the community. And like, finally, he stopped me and he was like, could you be a little bit more specific about what community you're talking about? And I was like, you are absolutely right. And he was like, no, I didn't mean to be like, you know, like, you know, harsh. And I was like, no, you're no, not being you harsh, but you're absolutely right. I need to be very much more specific about what we're talking about. And it, it BIPOC strikes me the same way. It's like, can we, let's just be like, yeah. you know, specific about yeah. what we're talking about. We're talking about black people. Let's talk about black people. We're talking about, you know, um, you know, Latinx people, let's talk about Latinx people and just like name these groups because I think when we do that, you know, we just sort of give the issues much more visibility and much more power mm -hmm. and we're empowering people to actually like get their hands dirty and help and act. Um, so I don't know. I mean, what do you think, Paige? I think, I mean, everything that both of y'all just said, <laughs> there's so many, I mean, uh, the first time we talked about this, I said this, but I'll say it again, because it still happens when I see BIPOC, I think bisexual people of color, it's just what my brain does. <laughs> that is the very, the very first time I saw it, that's what I thought. I was like, that is so specific. Still. Okay. Because <laughs> it was, it was like, it was a, it was a comment on like a Facebook post. Like we had announced the season a couple of years ago and somebody was like, you need to be telling more BIPOC stories. And I was like, are there, are there operas about bisexual people? I mean, yes. <laughs> You're like, yes, but that's very specific. But yes. <laughs> I mean, that was exactly my, 
yeah my thoughts so there's still like just that little like one second correction that needs to happen in my brain every time i read it um and i, I mean one of the things that immediately struck me and maybe because this is a topic that like i've been thinking about a lot and um i once interned at the smithsonian uh, museum for indigenous peoples and like i'm doing like some work that's specifically trying to unite black and indigenous communities right now to have better relations to see each other as uh relatives and not just our more like contentious histories but anyway the first one of the first things i noticed i was like huh black and indigenous aren't two mutually exclusive terms mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. indigenous and poc aren't two mm -hmm. mutually exclusive terms either a person of any color can be indigenous is not a racial identity right. Right. so that was interesting <laughs> that part is still interesting to me and there's probably a whole there's a whole other conversation there about indigenous peoples and being more specific than just indigenous or native when you can be um but yeah i i think a thing that i don't i don't know what what irks me more if it's just the original <laughs> what the term attempts to do or then how I also see it being used because I don't know how many times where um, I'm reading or, or hearing about something that's really specific to black folks or where the main ones experiencing it um, especially when it's specific to black women it somehow becomes BIPOC and I'm like hmm interesting how we're just using <laughs> where we kind of like use it to take the specificity away and to include try to include everyone uh and that sometimes that's some like an admirable thing like mm -hmm. you do want to say our experiences are are connected like black we're talking about black people right now but these folks go through this too um, but even if you're gonna do that, just name them. Just, <laughs> just, just name them. Um, who exactly? Who, who are you? Who are you talking about? Um, yeah, I think it just serves us better to be, to be more specific. And we could talk about how even within black people don't <laughs> necessarily all want to be just be called black. Like, Absolutely. I personally, I'm fine with that. I am black. Yes. Blacky, black, black. I love it. However, <laughs> other people <laughs> would rather you be much more specific. Like if you mm -hmm. are talking about them and their culture or their people and you say BIPOC, but they are mm -hmm. Nigerian, but they are Dominican, they are whatever. They'll be like, mm, actually, <laughs> could we not use, could we not, exactly. could we not use that? And I find myself having the same reaction. Yeah. Yeah. It, it feels like a lot of it is, you know, certainly well-intentioned and, and meant to serve a function, right? Like the term Alana mm -hmm. that was being used a lot a few years ago. I think with certain terms, there's no way around that you noticeably are leaving people out. Like with Alana, which was always part of the challenge I had with it. And then with BIPOC, like maybe airing so far on the other side that like you, you lose any sense of nuance. And yet, as a person who for a living writes about people who have a certain set of experiences because we're not white, I also know that we need a word there, right? It just needs yeah. to be 
one that we've sort of, I don't know, wrestled with some of the political dynamics of it. And I don't know if either of you knows who Angelo Falcone is. Um, he's a scholar who actually taught at Columbia for a while, and I, I believe he's, he's now deceased, unfortunately. Um, but one of the things that he has written about that I actually thought made a ton of sense was we have been trying to put the term in ahead of the conversation around what the term is supposed to do for the people who represent it. And I think that's yes. where there always feels like there's some kind of, I don't know, like not enough is happening with something. It's like these words divorced from their actual social context and the heft that comes with representing the histories of trauma that that all of our bodies are, are like physical, you know, markers of. I, I think there's just a little bit more. You can't just toss out an acronym without the everything else coming along with it, I feel like. So can you remind me, Lee, what did Alana stand for? Yes. Um, was it? So I can tell you what was in there. I may not be able to get the A's in the right order, but I know that there was um, Asian American, um, there was an N and an A that was intended as Native American, I believe. Um, one of the A's was Arab, I think, and one was African, as an African American. Um, I do remember the L was for Latinx, but even in that, configuration it still felt like this we're not all in here you know mm -hmm. we're, yeah. we're just not all in here and you know I used to feel the weight of that a lot when we were saying like because I'm older than y'all like you know just <laughs> lesbian gay and bisexual and I felt like well there are a whole lot of other people who are not just fellow travelers but like really meant to be included in some of the movement work and some of the organizing work, and we don't have the language right now. And then the acronym kept getting longer and longer and longer. Mm -hmm. And then people finally were just like, you know what, we're all just queer people, or something else <laughs> of the like. And, and we were able to kind of move in a direction, but that came with a lot of discussion. And a lot of collectives and a lot of groups were doing a lot of very hard work associated with reclaiming that word and defining what it meant. And I remember those arguments. I remember being in college and hearing graduate students and professors of what at the time was women's studies, but is, you know, we call it gender studies now or something of the like, right? And talking that through and also having the, doing the work at the time of talking about the difference of between women's studies and gender studies or the difference between black studies and African-American or Africana studies. Like, actively being a student when these conversations were happening lets me know that there's power in the conversation where that leaves people feeling on the other side more empowered to talk about their identity in a way that is native to them and that feels good and you feel like you you have at your fingertips the lexicon that you need to say this is who i am today and i appreciate that tomorrow i may need different words because i'm a whole person and i'm changing and all of these things right and i think with bipoc no shade to you know whoever came up with the term I, I i know why you did i feel it right but i think it came without the same kind of conversation around who's included who's left out and i don't know i feel imposed upon when somebody says that i'm bipoc because i didn't get a vote and i don't 
I guess I just don't agree with the political framing of it, just like at a very basic level. And I use it begrudgingly <laughs> in documents for work at times because I get that the field, this communicates something to the field that is important at the moment. But personally, when Lee Bynum goes home, which is also work right now, which is kind of weird too, but when Lee Bynum <laughs> goes home, like, you know, Damien and I aren't being like, we're a BIPOC household. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> so I, I don't know. I, I guess it, you know, this is clearly a conversation in progress, right? And, and we are all locating ourselves differently. And I think to your earlier point, Rocky, the events of the last year, a lot of groups are probably going to be in a different place on their own sort of political action spectrum in terms of how they want to be seen and how they want that to be described. And I look forward to, you know, more work being done around the right set of terms to talk about ourselves. Yeah, I think, well, first, I am just going to go ahead and assert that no single individual should ever be referred to as BIPOC. Look at the, look at that look at that BIPOC man walking Let's down just... the street. <laughs> I like that BIPOC man's shirt. <laughs> BIPOC hair, BIPOC cuisine. I mean... <laughs> See how ridiculous oh, this sounds? So let's this all agree bi- not to do this, that. Let's all this agree. BIPOC music is wonderful. <laughs> I am just enjoying myself. I wanted to shake my little BIPOC booty. <laughs> I mean, that is what it sounds like, though. Like, so let's let's not let's be more specific. <laughs> and also, I feel like some of where people get tripped up is um, not uh, really thinking through whether like what they're writing or talking about or whatever is about race or ethnicity mm. or nationality. Mm. And that one just really be kicking people's butts when you're <laughs> thinking about trying to articulate something. So I feel like a lot of the time we could get more clear when like, okay, are we talking about like a common experience of anti-blackness? Because if so, then you talking about like you may be talking about black people specifically Mm -hmm. or you're talking about people who maybe don't identify as black or we wouldn't identify as black, but who are in a darker hue within their racial group, you know. So and when we're talking about ethnicity, those are ethnic groups. Those are totally different things. You could be ethnically African but you appear something else. So if we could just like break that down sometimes, I feel like we would get caught up a little less and we could be more specific about who we're talking about. Or there have been many times where I've seen somebody writing um, about something that seems to unite people along a line of class, especially. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Like uh, maybe a combination of like class and, and race and it gets kind of just distilled down to BIPOC and where it's like, well, hold on, because if you're including like black middle-class folks or upper-class folks, and it it doesn't apply anymore, it it falls apart. So if we can like really think that through, I think we end up in a better place. 
Yeah. And it felt it feels like it was a conversation that we started having in the late nineties and then somehow it just kind of we all got distracted. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, yeah, let, let's have that conversation again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm curious because one thing that happened when we were um Chatting with our upcoming guest, Dr. Nkeru Okoye. Yes. <laughs> she, we were talking about, um, you know, as we were sort of setting up, you know, somebody threw out the, the, um, the term people of color. And she objected because of, you know, just sort of, um, you know, the, the more colonial, mm-hmm. um, I guess, what is the word that I'm looking for? Connotations, mm-hmm. I suppose. Um, of that term, and so I'm I'm curious what the two of you think um, about just people of color, POC. You know, I so my understanding of people of color when it was initially being used, it was meant to refer to people of mixed heritage, right? And it was being very very common in certain parts of the United States, like New Orleans and Charleston, where there were large communities um, of people of of mixed race heritage. And it was used a lot in those contexts and then continued to be used well into the early uh, 20th century by lots of people who were meaning to capture large, um, diverse groups of black people. Right. So you can see it in the terms of writers of um, sorry, black writers a lot from that era talking about various groups of people, especially like in Harlem, where you were having. Um, a mix of people from the the Northeast, um, people coming up from the South in the Great Migration, and then a lot of immigrants from the Caribbean, and using um, people of color there as a term of art meant to refer to any kind of black person, which I guess in that moment we were spending much more time thinking in terms of a binary, either you were white or you were black, even you know, with some levels of nuance. Some of the things I've read from that era, you know, freely talk about, you know, people from Puerto Rico as being black people in that context, right? Um, So, you know, I try not to get too caught on the historical piece because it just changes. Our understandings Mm -hmm. of it change as we go. And right now, I guess I have a hard time understanding when I need to be able to use a word for shorthand a better one, right? Underrepresented works a lot in some contexts, but there are other contexts where we're not really underrepresented. We're just not mm-hmm. white. Um, I'm not interested in saying not white. I find it condescending fundamentally. Mm-hmm. Um, and I sometimes I've I've seen minoritized, not right. minority, but minoritized. Uh, right. And you know <laughs> that that works and it doesn't when you think mm-hmm. about if you are under the age of 18 right now and you are black, Latinx, mm-hmm. Asian, uh-huh. indigenous, yeah. you are not a, a minority, right? So that's also something like we only have like 10, 12 more years of being able to use that. <laughs> so, you know, I've been interested in finding something that feels better. Because um, I definitely get that there is historical weight for a lot of people with person of color. And, you know, I've had this conversation with older family members who hear person of color and just hear color. 
Mm-hmm. And, and that is, you know, clearly off-putting to older family members I have who were, you know, spending time in the South, you know, in the early 60s and 50s, what have you. And it, it's like older LGBT folks, um, LGBTQIA+, excuse me, <laughs> <laughs> um, who, who hear the word queer right. and have yeah. the same reaction. Right, yeah. absolutely. And, you know, I think it's a moment where language is letting us down and we mm-hmm. just don't have all the words that we use yet. Um, but what what do you feel about it, Paige? Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Complicated, all of that. I mean, honestly, when, when Dr. Okoye said that, I was like, right, yes. And this is what I'm constantly <laughs> coming up with against. I mean, in terms of race, in in time in in terms of gender also i am increasingly like seeing gender as like not my not really being able to be defined by any english or colonial term mm-hmm. and it it's ah, it's kind of the same <laughs> the same thing i i don't know i i i totally like resonated with what with what she said and there's a part of my mind that's also like, well, we're in a completely different reality. <laughs> Colonialism has has happened. I mean, especially, I mean, maybe I feel this even even more as like a, as a as a Black American and you know descendant of shadow slavery. I don't people you know other people who are who are here we go again of color who are (laughs) who are not white may may feel differently but i very much feel that you know it's it's hard to find a term that doesn't feel like a colonial term because just our reality has changed that much like we are a creolized people like (laughs) we just we just are so creolized there we go. I learned that one from a book. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I was like, yes, we are. Even if you don't like identify, you don't have to identify as Creole, know, but, but you know, we, we Creole lies. Yeah, so, and, and you know, part of the condition of being black anyway is taking a thing and turning it on its ear in terms of what its definition has been and then using mm-hmm. it in ways that are beneficial to us, right? And we're going to have to do that with a lot of language because English has not gifted us with any words that quite get to the experience of being a person of color slash BIPOC slash Alana slash wherever we happen to be when people are listening to this podcast. We don't have words for it. (laughs) A language we didn't create that we just... That was not created for us? Yeah, <laughs> totally. <laughs> well, I think this is a conversation, obviously, that we're going to keep having. Mm-hmm. Um, but if any of you all out there have any terms that you have been using or you have heard um, that you like, um, send it in to us at the score at mnopera.org. And uh, we just might read your letter um, on the air on a future episode. Um, but stay tuned because the aforementioned Dr. Okoye, composer, scholar, recent Guggenheim, I mean, her resume is just like (laughs) 50 pages long, so I'm not even going to attempt to because you do a very good job (laughs) of, (laughs) of introducing her in the next segment, Lee, so I'm 
Let's uh, let's take a quick break, and we will be back with Dr. Koyay. Okay, everyone, and we are back with our guest. It is my absolute pleasure to introduce to you one of my favorite composers and a dear friend, Dr. Inkiru Okoye. A composer with a gift for incorporating many influences and styles within her work, Guggenheim Fellow Inkiru Okoye is perhaps best known for her opera, Harriet Tubman, When I Cross That Line to Freedom, the orchestral work, Voices Shouting Out, which is an artistic response to 9-11, and her sweet African sketches, which has been performed by pianists around the globe. Dr. Okoye is profiled in the Music of Black Composers Coloring Book and Routledge's textbook, African American Music and Introduction. She is the inaugural recipient of the International Florence Price Award for Composition. A recent New York Times article mentioned Okoye's work would make a fitting grand opening for an opera company's post-pandemic relaunch, hint, hint. The state of Michigan <laughs> issued a proclamation acknowledging Dr. Okoye's extraordinary contributions to the history of Detroit, Michigan for Black Bottom, a symphonic experience commissioned by the Detroit Symphony Orchestra in celebration of the centennial season of Orchestra Hall. Her other recent works include Tales from the Briar Patch, commissioned by the American Opera Project, and Charlotte Mecklenburg, commissioned by the Charlotte Symphony. Some of her upcoming compositions for 2021 to the 2022 season include Yuba's Dance for, cello, for cellist Matt Heimovitz, which Apple Music has selected as an instant grat track this week, when Young Spring Comes for pianist and NPR host Laura Downs and a micro opera, 600 square feet for Cleveland Opera Theater. Dr. Okoye is a board member of Composers Now. She holds a bachelor's of music and composition from the Oberlin Conservatory and a PhD in music theory and composition from Rutgers University. Thank you for being here with us today, Dr. Okoye. Yay! Yay. Welcome. <laughs> we are so happy. I'm just pleased and, and thankful to be here. Well, we are so thankful to have you. And, you know, we were chatting just before we came back from break about how I've had the pleasure of knowing and working with Inkiru over many, many times over the last dozen or so years. And my husband, Damien Norfleet, two of my most favorite things that he has ever sung, and I generally love everything he sings. That's how marriage works. Well, Work you better. <laughs> right. Is it an option? <laughs> it is not. <laughs> but Inkiru has composed two of those pieces, um, one for the aforementioned Harriet Tubman opera and the other um, invitation to a Diane, an extraordinary piece of music around um, the, the violence that is done to black bodies um, by the state in this instance, the police, but hopefully we'll have some time to talk about that a little bit yeah. later. I know Paige has a pressing <laughs> question for you. So maybe we could start there. I'll turn it over to you, Paige. Yes, a burning question, because I mean, right now, I mean, I'm thankful that you're here on the show, but I 
I'm specifically thankful for you writing Black Bottom and mm. because I'm from Detroit. And oh. so just to be seen in that way um, it was just really beautiful. And I got like emotional seeing that uh, like a movement was named Bethel AME because like mm -hmm. I, I went there growing up, like I, I have distinct memories in the, the sanctuary of that church and just seeing pieces named after places I, I know. So mm -hmm. thank you for writing something so beautiful that represents my people. Um, and there are so many reasons to like write story to just want to tell like black, like biographical kind of stories about our lives, about the cities, places we live, but what are your top reasons for, for doing so? What moves you to, to mm -hmm. specifically focus on African-American history? Well, um, two things. Let me first start with uh, Black Bottom, which, um, the Detroit Symphony had commissioned me, but they said, you know, specifically, this is, um, we'd like you to write a piece, write whatever it is that you like. And a lot, of, that's just a rare thing for composers. It's kind of like, we want you to write for this, or we want you to write for that. And I have a very special relationship with the Detroit Symphony. Uh, simply because they have done so many things for Black composers. And they were doing these, um, they were doing conferences and uh, readings by uh, music by Black composers. And it's just a long-standing history. It's, it's, it's been over 20 years. So Black Bottom was commissioned for, it was about their 40th classical roots celebration. Mm. And it was actually classical roots that got me into understanding that I had a place as a black composer. So in a lot of ways, Detroit Symphony is why I am still in music. Mm. <laughs> so, you know, to be brought back and you know, first I came as a student and then I came as one of the people who was having a, a piece being read. And that first piece, it was 20 years ago, it was Voices Shouting Out. And that launched my career in, you know, in orchestra world. So, um, you know, it's kind of deja vu when they bring maestro Tom Wilkins and he comes back and it's the two of us <laughs> 20 years later on the same stage with the same orchestra. And so <laughs> I was like, wow. But, um, you know, so for an occasion like that, I like to consider the entire occasion. And they said the only thing that they asked was for me to find a way to tie it into Detroit in some way and Orchestra Hall, because it was also the 100th anniversary of, um, of, 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 Symphony, of Orchestra Hall. And so I found a story where going through um, different, you know, different topics, different things that, that could happen. I worked really closely with their management. Um, and I like to do that. I like to, uh, my commissioners, I, I look at them as my collaborators. Mm -hmm. You know, so if we're going to do this thing that's specifically for a community and specifically for this concert, if you're going to, especially with this, you know, they're honoring me with this specific 
commission, then let's do something that really fits in well. And I found the story of Black Bottom and that area is right around where Symphony Hall was. And I said, that's it, that's the story. Mm-hmm. And so that's how, that's how that happened. And uh, one thing that I did do is I insisted, I said, um, you know, before I write this piece, I need to come to Detroit. I need to see the different places. And as we were there, we went on a tour. We had this amazing tour guide and he literally does these black Detroit tours. And he's a a, a retired school teacher and he does these tours and just, I mean, I was taking notes. I mean, it was was incredible. And um, this was like my college level course on black bottom. And so um, yeah, yeah. So that is how I got to know these specific locations. And I had in my mind, I was like, okay, when I do this, um, I, I kind of want to have these historic pictures, you know, and I thought of, okay, uh, think of, um, his, uh, when you think of Mazorski's pictures at an exhibition, what if I just had a couple of different locations in Black Bottom? And I addressed those. And my other point for doing that was strategic. People like to do community engagement. And I have to say that Detroit Symphony understands community engagement. Yes. (laughs) But my first, the thing that I was doing even before I really became a professional composer, I was always the person that had to speak to the community and whatever institution. So whether it was my high school or the college <laughs> or grad school, I was I, I ended up being that kind of bridge figure. And so I said, if I'm gonna do this, if we want to get the community out, we need to talk to people in the community. And so I I did, I can't tell you how many interviews. I mean, it wasn't like hundreds of them, but we interviewed is probably around, um, it, it probably somewhere around 20, 25 people that we interviewed. And um, between that and the tour guide, and I kept asking everybody, actually, if we look at the people in the historical society and um, the folks at the orchestra, whoever, I asked them the same <laughs> series of questions so that we got some you know, qualitative data about what locations to, to look at. And so between all of these things, I, you know, I fashioned this piece. So that's how that happened. <laughs> it's beautiful. I just love the, the care that went into that. And I'm beaming with, <laughs> with gratitude and pride in my city. I am. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you know, and the other thing that I really love about that piece is that, you know, here's this story that most people would say, this is an awful story. This is a story about this. Our people are resilient. Mm -hmm. I love it. It does not focus on the suffering and the downtrodden. It talks about the life that was there. And of course, Bethel, Bethel AME was there, you know? So of course we have to talk about that. And there's a story about uh, Rosa Slade Gregg, you know? Here's this woman who just, um, um, you know, here's racism, 
here's redlining and redlining is a discriminatory housing uh, process. And um, which sadly still happens today, but no, it's not an official policy anyway. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Rosa Slade Gray had a lot of money. You know, she's married. She, you know, I think she's married to a doctor or something. I don't remember. But um, so Rosa Slade Gray is is privileged. And so when the people said, you know, she wants to build this house and they, they were like racism. And she said, oh, you know what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just... <laughs> not listening to this message that the message is that you think I'm inferior yet your message is wrong I'm not wrong your message is wrong <laughs> I love this story so of course of course that had to be in there you know so you know it's 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 things like that and of course we touch upon you know the sorrow and um uh, um paradise valley which it was a, a bit like harlem you know at that time so we talk about all of these things but it's the joys and the sorrows and the stories it's the whole it's the whole picture rather than focusing only on something horrific that happened. Yes. yes. That's really, that's really beautiful. And it, you know, we talk a lot about Black joy on this podcast and the importance of really shifting the narrative around, yes. you yes. know, yes. exactly what our participation <laughs> in this space would be. And, you know, if I could use this as a moment to segue just a little bit into the future of this art form, right? And I think one of the things that's really important is for us to have these conversations with living, breathing creators of art, right? To help us think about what are we doing now and where are we going? So if I could ask, you know, what changes would you like to see in opera or classical music more broadly, specifically as it relates to Black people? The country right now is making specific amends to African Americans. Mm -hmm. And I'll even just say African American citizens, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And um, so suddenly everyone is making these statements. We're standing in solidarity, we're doing this. My question is how can we do this? But while we're still looking at us as a people through this colonial mindset. And so if there's one thing that I would change, it's first seeing the colonial mindset and then addressing the colonial mindset and understanding that there is a colonial mindset. I had an interview recently and we were talking about issues of race and music. And one thing that I said is that if you say that black lives matter, but you still treat me as someone who is not equal to you, you're not only being hypocritical, you actually may be endangering my life. And I also went on to say that saying I'm not prejudiced against black people is very different than saying I'm not prejudiced against you. And every time that someone acts out with a microaggression, it's personal. It impacts that person's life and there is a ripple effect. And it's so interesting, you know, we're, we're on this Zoom 
format where I can see everyone's kind of nodding, you know, um, you know, people talk about Black Lives Matters, and it's so easy to have this rallying cry. What's more, what's, what's the more substantive work is actually understanding who we are as a people and looking at and saying, hey, Black doesn't mean underprivileged. Black can mean glorious, there's Black love, there's Black joy, there's all these different things that we can focus on. Um, a lot of outreach is impacted by this mindset that Black means underprivileged. And so a lot of people, uh, you know, if you ask them, what is outreach? And at this point, people, you know, they're coming to me and saying, okay, we want to do this project or this project. And we think it's going to be really useful for outreach. And the first thing is, well, I'm an artist. Why are you using my work for outreach? Is it, is it a tool? Does this mean that you're conceiving of my work as a, as a tool? You know, people talk about BIPOC artists. And well, what does that mean? Does that mean that everybody else is part of the canon? And as this BIPOC entity, I'm not part of the canon. And by definition, then I'm never part of the canon. And so, you know, that's actually quite offensive when you really think about it that way. So these are things that if they do not change, or people continue working with this same mindset, it's perpetuating these same issues. Also, one thing that I have found in my journey, and I'm sure that all of you have found, is that the poor and the uneducated come in all races, all creeds. And so one thing that all of these folks have in common is a lack of interest in opera and in classical music. It's not specific to black people. So if you want to engage black people, perhaps the issue isn't us. Maybe the issue is what you're offering, which is what brings me to repertoire. And I love the repertoire question. I love that as a topic because I'm a composer. So let's create some repertoire. Absolutely. Well, one of the things that, you know, really struck me um, when you were talking about Black Bottom is going into the community and interviewing folks and really bringing them in and making them a part of the piece. Um, and, and just using, you know, their experiences and their history um, as, as inspiration for that piece. And so I'm just curious, in your opinion, what are some more of the things that people in sort of our positions um, as administrators, as sort of these institutions, what are some of the things that we can do to create a more you know, inclusive and diverse and equitable um, opera industry and, and spaces for artists? Mm. Well, um... The first thing is really to address the repertoire issue. Mm -hmm. If you really want people to come in, um, um, if you want people to come into your space, 
you need to make them feel welcome. You know, it's so important to make people feel welcome, you know? Um, and as arts administrators, you all can only do, you all can do your part and the community has to do their part, you know? And it's the community, the white community, the black community, the Asian community, you know, all of that, the, the Latinx community, they all have to do their part. But as arts administrators, you know, um, if you, I think the, 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 the first thing that you're doing, and I love that uh, you're doing this series, you know, you're talking about these issues. And I think, you know, I think that's the first thing. It's, it's, it's a wonderful first step. Um, the second, I would also say, is to realize that one of my, one of my girlfriends and I were, were talking about this. And the saying is simply that not all skin folk is kinfolk. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> no, that's that. <laughs> <laughs> Say it again for the people in the back. <laughs> um, you know, when people are looking to hire people, you know, in in these important roles, you know, um, it's as if okay. Now that I've done this, we've accomplished, you know, uh, we, we've accomplished our diversity goals. So, well, what if that's a skin folk who's not a kin folk? You know, have, have, you, have you addressed it? Why is it only one person? Um, you know, how are, how are you screening these folks? I think that, you know, as opera companies, as um, arts organizations are looking to broaden, to diverse, diversify, to do whatever, you know, I think that a discussion has to be had. What is your view about being an African-American? And just asking that question says a lot, you know? And I think also that there has to be training in terms of what are good responses to that question, <laughs> you know, you know how, how, so I, I think that's a really, really important, important thing, you know, because if you have only one person who looks at DEI, and a lot of times you get that, it, it, now you also, you know, there was the community engagement person, and now we have more, more people who are doing that, but if you're a community engagement person, if that's your, if that is your um, opening point to the community and that person doesn't understand that they are kinfolk, you have a problem, you know, and the ideas about repertoire and um, um, other issues that come in, other sociological issues that people aren't necessarily looking for because it's this perception, it's the colonial mindset. You know, we're white people, we, we're, we're diverse. Um, black people, they're the minority. So obviously there's only one, only one right way to look at it. There's only mm -hmm. one perspective and recognizing that, wait a minute, 
there are so many differing perspectives. There's so many different paths. Why not find someone who has someone, something that is similar to yours? Find someone who speaks as you do, someone who has your education, and then um, has that community mindset. Go for that first. And um, looking at it from that perspective, I think that these, you know, th these are some key things that can happen. Now, in terms of repertoire, because I believe that you all are in this right space, when we look at repertoire, a lot of people say, oh, okay, let's attract Black people by showing there's an all-Black cast to whatever it is, opera. Um, say it's Kosi Bantuti, you know? And so let's do it that way, or let's have an all-Black cast of La Boheme, and that's just going to get all the Black people in. Really? Really? Right? <laughs> to me, that just fixes it, right? You know, what I find more and more, and what I'm actually seeing on your faces, people respond to stories that include them. So if you have stories that don't include them, and that is all of what your repertoire is, you'd be amazed at how incredibly uninteresting opera becomes, you know? And so um, not everybody is going to have that same exposure, but it doesn't mean that people aren't interested. You know, uh, the people who were in any number of my different pieces and, you know, I've made this career, not just in composing, but with community engagement specifically, um, you know, we, when we were doing Harriet Tubman, we got people who don't even like opera. Now th those are, you know, now you have to think about this. It's an opera, it's about Harriet Tubman. Mm -hmm. So um, it's written by a black woman. Now other people are saying, wow, this is a really hard sell. And I'm like, just tell them to come in, you know? <laughs> so, people would come in because it's Harriet Tubman. And then they also see, oh, there are people who look like me that are on the stage. And I also try to make sure that people who are in the orchestra, you know, are also, you want to be represented all over the place. And we had so many people who just, they said, you know, I didn't even like opera and I want to see this piece. <laughs> you know, Black Bottom also. I went, you know, all, all of the locations that were inside of there, I made visits because after I interviewed, I made visits to all of these places when I came back. And a lot of these people were not interested. They're everyday people, but um, everyday people doesn't mean underprivileged. It doesn't mean uneducated. It simply means that you haven't engaged them yet. Well, what better way can you possibly have to engage them but to say, hi, I see you, you know, I, I get you and I'm writing this piece for you. So come on in and see it. Seriously, come on in. <laughs> yeah, people just come in. So um, the ways in which we engage audiences has to change, you know? And um, the way that we conceive of art, you know, a lot of people would then say, okay, well, let's, let's have a piece of music and um, we're gonna have all these other pieces there for everybody, but we're gonna have this special focus 
piece that really deals with the inner city. And we're going to, well, since it's so specialized, not a whole lot of people are going to go. And since it is so specialized, maybe let's just put it off on this small, tiny, you know, the space, which we don't even really use. Mm-hmm. Now, see, now we start getting into where it's so, it's so close. It's like, oh, you got so close. Mm-hmm. Now you've tipped over <laughs> into that other thing. What's that R word? <laughs> hey, I think we, so, I think we know. <laughs> one guess doing the opera about um oh i don't know give me some person who represents underrepresented some pop figure who 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 represents underrepresented well underprivileged white people who who would that be Just give me give me you know unless you're doing an opera about that for your underprivileged white people. Let's talk about equity. Don't do that about black people. Yeah. I, yeah. I, wow. I, I feel like you've <laughs> taken us both to church and to grad school and exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. You've given us so many incredible things to, to think about. And, and, you know, as we frequently chat, for sometimes hours more than we have planned to. I feel like we could talk all weekend, but I, I feel very respectful that you have many things to do. But I wanted to really highlight one thing um, in our remaining minutes, because something that I've so appreciated about your career is the way that you have taken very seriously this charge to represent us and have done it in a way that never condescends to our experience. And whether it is something like Tales from the Briar Patch or Harriet Tubman, or, you know, any number of other things, you know, written about Greek mythology, I can still feel our presence and our stories in all of those things. So I wanted to know, are there any upcoming projects that you have that you would like to share information about so that our audience members also can have the chance to experience what it is that you're doing in real time? Well, since you mentioned it, (laughs) um, as you know, I am working on an opera right now and it is a project, it has not yet been announced, but I feel that I, you know, um, I can give the name of this project. It's called At the Grande. And this is an opera that um, I'm also writing the libretto for it. And what I think is, is neat about this is that, you know, some people would not have a composer be the librettist. And some people would say, okay, you need to find a black librettist or a female librettist. And hi. Uh, (laughs) 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 But, um, you know, and and the understanding that, uh, you know, uh, um, a, a a lot of companies are saying, okay, we can't find black librettists or we can't find, so let's find some poet. And well, a poet's not a librettist and or someone who, who does other things. And what if they don't have any exposure to classical music and then you have this libretto that's not there and you can't do an opera without a libretto. So um, 
I went back and I was like, okay, um, I can write this libretto, but I need someone to work with me. And so I went to Lee Bynum. And oh gosh, this is just such a fun story. And um, um, I'm just going to, let's see. So this is a, a corporate caper. And, you know, in terms of um, looking at our people and changing the narrative on them. Um, this one's about a, 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 a black beauty queen. And uh, it says, so faced with betting her boss or losing her new job, Amali, an African-American former beauty queen turned chief diversity officer of multinational Grande Investments, conspires to blackmail the company's CEO, who is a notorious bigot and sexist. And they are aided by his disgruntled wife and their chief of staff who is hiding something. Oh. Actually, the brother is passing. Oh. They don't know he's black. <laughs> <laughs> and it's about to be captured on a reality show. Now see, uh, <laughs> now, um, what I love about this- That sounds story, amazing. I'm already a fan. I'm already a fan. <laughs> Already. It's fun. It's fun. And so there's a mixed race cast to this. And it talks about the harm done by blackface and blackface dolls. And you know those um they're called gollywogs with those kind of Aunt Jemima mm. dolls with mm -hmm. the yeah. So people think it's funny to dress up in in blackface and they wonder what the harm is. And so this is something that as an African American woman, you know, I can say, hey. This is something that we can talk about and you can, you know, talk, talk about it obliquely. And this story is very, very, very layered. And so what's at the top is not necessarily the entire story. And so um, here's this young woman and uh, she was a beauty queen and she decides that her, her, her boss, um, you know, he's making passes at her. So we're also talking about sexual harassment and um, she says, no, well, he's a, he, he's a billionaire. So what does he do? He makes a gollywog. He makes a blackface doll of her and mass markets it because he can do that. So, so now what are they going to do? And so, um, so wow. that's part of, <laughs> well, no, it's deep, right? so, um, and it's a comedy and this is the thing, it's, it's lighthearted. So there's a love story in here and it's in some ways, it's some ways it's similar to the marriage of Figaro. And um, there's also this thing about presumptions about African-Americans. And again, we are presumed incompetent. We are presumed inferior. We're presumed to be less than. So you have this one character who is passing and passing simply means that um, whether it's active, meaning you're hiding that you're black or it's passive, meaning you just don't tell people Either way, this person is able to maneuver without people knowing his, his ethnicity. And so he uses this to his advantage. And um, let's just say um, a conversation is about to be overheard and he's about to be found out. <laughs> so, um, so that's a lot of fun. And um, I have another one that is, it's, it's a different opera. And this is the one um, I, I just became, I recently became a Guggenheim fellow. 
and congratulations <laughs> yay <laughs> so I'm still I'm still kind of new in this I was like I got a Guggenheim you know and it's kind of like I've crossed over this this threshold and now it's kind of like there's this pantheon of the gods that are, are people awards <laughs> and so I don't quite feel like I'm quite there yet but there it is, <laughs> there it is. <laughs> it is. so it's it's a really super joyous thing and I wrote a story and I have um I have a, a little uh, a, a little um it's a bank of, of stories. It's a little, little folder that if I'm, you know, I'll be inspired and I'll write, uh, write out the plot of an opera like, uh, like at the Grande. And, you know, sometimes people will approach me with like the Detroit Symphony did and say, oh, hey, you know, write whatever it is that you like. And so if people do that to me with operas, I'm like, well, you know, I have a couple of ideas. Let's see if one of them would interest you. And um, this is something that I'd had on my heart for, for quite some time, you know, and it's called A Truth Before Their Eyes. And um, this is a, it's, a, it's, a, it's got a much more serious, serious tone. And it's, it's a, it's, about an unexpected friendship between two professional black women and they are struggling to be heard in a small community where black lives matter is proclaimed while residents are blinded to the everyday race bias surrounding them and it is inspired by true events and um, you know in this story i created two heroines and it's interesting to have this dual protagonists. Um, and one of them, is, they're, they're both black doctors. And one of them is a medical doctor and the other is an academic. So has a PhD and she is a, she's also a landscape artist. So she's got an MFA and she's also got a, a PhD in black studies. When people look at race relations and they lift and, um, what Black Lives Matters has come to symbolize for many people, not for all people, but for many people, is that here are Black people and they are being treated badly at the hands of the police. But of course, there's a bit to blame because they're having encounters by the police. For the most part. And so, um, you know, this narrative of the urban black man is as it's, you know, there's so many stories that are now happening about this. My thing is, well, what about everyday racism? And what about black women? What about um, urban, not, not what about those of us who aren't quote unquote urban, you know? Um, because there's, far more of us than people would think. And um, well, I would actually venture to say, and you all can, can, can agree or disagree, but we're far more likely to go to see the opera. <laughs> you know, so um, I wanted to address these issues. And this is another one of these, um, um, it's multi-layered stories. And so um, 
what happens here is that you have a um, the, the the one protagonist. Her name is Ingozi, and um, she is locating to this close non-diverse town, and it's never actually specified where where it is. And um, she she gets a job as a professor, and some months later she gets these blinding headaches, and she goes to the ER, and they treat her very dismissively. You know, the, the neurology staff just, um, well, she's a black woman with headaches. So, <laughs> so, you know, she just leaves. And then three weeks, a couple of, you know, a, a couple of weeks later, she comes back. And this time she can't speak at all. And, you know, she could say a few utterances. And so while they, they have her medical records there, the doctors mistake her symptoms for psychosis. Now we say mistake, what about profile? Mm. They profiled her and they said, oh, okay, this is psychosis. So they lock her up in their mental health ward. And that's where she is. Same hospital, the, neuro, the, the, the other doctor, she's a neuropsychiatrist and she is the department's only African-American doctor. She, she, she's looking around and she's calling attention to, she says, there's a disproportionate amount of black people in our mental health ward. Now we're non-diverse. We should, we should have all of these, you know, the, the, the number of ill, you know, mentally ill black people should be proportionate to our, to our population. And yet here's the thing. And so Nobody ever wants to admit that there might possibly be a racism issue. So, um, you know, the other people, her supervisor, the other, the other folks in charge uh, who are looking at her as, um, you know, she's there, but um, they discount what she says. She's a black woman. You know, we hired her, but she's a black woman. And so it's about these micro aggressions. And so um, what ends up happening is that um, the medical doctor realizes there's, there's a report that comes in and there's a social worker and the social worker says, oh, no, you're completely wrong about this racism thing. You know, in fact, I'm an expert on black people you know, and, and you have these people who really believe that they're experts in, in black people and underserved populations. And um, because her, her boyfriend is, is, is her, her boyfriend is, is black. And so therefore she's become this expert. And so she says, you know what, there is a, there's a, a this African-American woman in the psych ward right now. And, and she's painting these amazing landscapes. You know, because we we are an artistic people, so this is how this woman is expressing her her despair. And now, see, Hope, who's our other doctor, who's you know her, she's being harassed by patients who want to see the real doctor and whatever. She's like, oh man, really, really, you don't see that this woman is a professional artist? And she remembers. Wait a minute, I heard this article. And um, wasn't there this, this famous landscape who, artist who came to town and was teaching at the local university and had something at the Smithsonian? So, <laughs> yeah. So wow. she rushes to this psych ward 
And um, so the two of them bond. And so it's this statement about people who cannot see the truth before their eyes and how that impacts all of our lives. And um, in the end, um, Ngozi, who's had this, um, she, 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 they, they get her out of the psych ward, but she's had a stroke as it turns out. And um, she needs an operation and she gets that operation. And um, people are marching for another black man who's died at the hands of the police. Mm -hmm. It's extraordinary. Thank you for giving us those two previews. I, I'm so personally very, very excited um, about both of those pieces and their capacity to tell stories about Black people that are not being told, not only not in the opera, but period. Right. Absolutely. Because, you know, I can tell you, especially like the spotlight on medical racism, you know, I can speak personally, Mm -hmm. my the scariest incident of just overt racist behavior in my entire life that I feel like I've ever experienced was one night when I had to go to the emergency room Mm -hmm. and to have my life in folks hands who just didn't see me and didn't hear me. Yes. And it happens to us every day. Yes, it does. So All over the country in so many ways. And so, ooh, when you were telling the story, I just got like chills a little bit. Yes. So, um, so thank you, thank you for <laughs> thank you for telling that story. Yeah, and I, I'm just, I didn't mean to go. No, no, oh no, no, no. Detail, but um, it's compelling. Mm-hmm. And I think that. I think that people want to look at, again, they want to look at, okay, I'm, I'm an anti-racist. Um, so therefore I understand. And the urban black male story is very, it's comfortable for them. It's comfortable to see that racism has a capital R and um, you have to protect the urban man, the urban black man against the police. Mm. But what about the other things that that lead up to that? Mm-hmm. I'd much rather talk about that so that there's no need to protect the urban black man or any person against the police. Ooh. So, <laughs> I'm shook. <laughs> I'm shook. <laughs> Damn, I was already such a fan and now I'm just like full on fangirling because yes, just, just yes, yes. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. When uh, Paige and Rocky shared with me their really great idea for this podcast, you were literally the first person I thought of and I immediately shared that with them. I sent them a list and your name was at the top. So I'm so glad that we were mm-hmm. This kind of conversation, because I think it is important in terms of understanding where the medium is going and how all of us can show up differently. So thank you again for being here, Dr. Okoye. And we are thank so- you, Dr. Bynum. <laughs> and we'll have to have you on again without Lee, so we can get some real tea. <laughs> <laughs>
wonderful interview. Thank you so much, Dr. Okoye, for gracing our podcast with your presence and your wisdom and your knowledge. Um, now, as usual, we're going to go into our last segment, which is our pure black joy. Yay! Yay. Peanut butter jelly time! <laughs> Peanut butter jelly time! <laughs> a PB&J, a little, a little, a little pure black joy, a little snack for your soul. And today, uh, we'll start it off with Lee. Woo-hoo. So, there were some lovely, lovely news. Um, the great playwright, Katori Hall, um, who was a contemporary of ours, Rockies, and mine when we were at Columbia University in the city of New York a couple, two, three years ago. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> and interestingly enough... Um, Class of 2019. <laughs> <laughs> she... Um, was a classmate of, of mine in the theater department and apparently someone that Paige studied years later as a theater major, um, <laughs> <laughs> making me feel nice in my age, um, has been awarded the 2021 Pulitzer for Drama this yes. year. So Yay! super excited for her. She is also, for you history buffs, the first black woman to win the Olivier, which is London's top prize for theater for a new play for Mountaintop, which I saw years ago on Broadway with um, the improbable cast of Samuel L. Jackson as Martin Luther King Mm. and the great Angela Bassett as a hotel maid (laughs) slash god. And it was an absolutely fantastic night of the theater. Um, Super excited for Katori and encourage all of you to look up her work in the theater. She also has another play on Broadway Right now, she wrote the libretto for the Tina Turner musical. She did. And yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. She was nominated for a Tony okay. for it. She sure, nice. she sure was, and perhaps she'll win. I think the Tonys are at some unusual part of the year now. I think they're in September instead of June now. Um, and she has a great show on, um, is it Stars? Pea Valley. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. For the grown-ups out there. Yes. Um, <laughs> but Definitely super, grown. <laughs> super excited for Katori. Congratulations. Um, wonderful, wonderful uh, bit of uh, history being made by a, a young African-American woman, incredibly talented playwright, and a really, really lovely person all around. Congratulations. Yay. That's Congrats. amazing. That's fantastic. Now, tangentially, <laughs> <laughs> Lee, was it? Were we on the podcast, or were were we just like talking? Um, like when you told me about the time you met Angela Bassett. I don't know if that was the podcast. We might have just been like just chatting, but there was one day that I was actually at Hermes, um, <laughs> clearly not to buy anything, mm. just had time to kill. Balling. Okay. <laughs> How much are they paying you as vice president of Impact? <laughs> <laughs> and they're looking for a little uh, coin purse or something like that. And um, I almost knocked Angela Bassett over because I wasn't watching where I was going. And I just like turned the corner and she was like, Whoop. and I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. And I, she was standing right in front of me, as gorgeous as always. Um, she's shorter oh than I was gosh. expecting her to be. She might have been like five, three-ish. 
I think. Wow. Um, but I mean, I can't even believe it. I know, because whenever I see her in film, like my guess is always she's like my height. She's like a goddess. Yeah, yeah absolutely. She's got tall I mean, not that, energy. Not that, you, not that you can't be 5'3 and a goddess, okay, but like, absolutely. I mean, she she seems like this Olympian. Right. Like. <laughs> very tall energy. She has very tall energy and also the most flawless complexion. Like the, the thing that is the thing is that she actually just looks like that. Like, it, it's not <laughs> fiction of the camera. She looked exactly like that. And as a person who wow. went to school for African-American studies and theater, the fact that that is what she studied as an undergrad has always been, like, I feel like our spiritual connection. Um, so the invitation stands, Angela. Please join us here on the podcast. <laughs> and I... I really did mean it. I'm so sorry. I almost knocked you over. That was <laughs> not my intention. I mean, she's like, she's like, you know, like a Beyonce. Like, I'm not yes. even sure if she should come on the podcast because I'm just going to be like, I'm in the handle the whole time. <laughs> she's I the mean, kind of person I'd also love to like speak to and like geek out about. She's just everything. Like people don't even acknowledge like the theater part enough, Mm -hmm. like the stage work. Mm -hmm. I want to have a whole interview just geeking out on that. Let's talk about to her and Samuel also about theater and their background. I would. (laughs) But you know, as like a young gay black child, just what's love got to do with it when that movie came out? (laughs) And I remember like doing Tina Turner, doing the spins during Proud Mary in my living room and my mom and sister looking at me like, hmm. (laughs) Okay, note that. (laughs) But just like, just, I mean, just iconic. Can we just ask though, for, I don't know, the Oscar or Tony or Emmy voters who are listening to the podcast, how is it that Angela Bassett has played Tina Turner, Betty Shabazz, um, Coretta Scott, uh, I'm sorry, Coretta Scott King, Rosa Parks, and y'all have seen fit to give her no awards? Like, what's going on? What? And what's actually this mom? And to tell, I mean, thank you, the queen <laughs> of Wakanda. Thank you. Like, I, I fully do not understand. I do not forgive you, and I have a problem with everybody until somebody right-sides that ship. So something's wrong. Something seriously. What? What did? Is there something that she that she did that we don't know about? And right. like y'all blacklisted her. <laughs> I'm I'm sure you're wrong if that's the case, and it's I a don't mistake. Think so, she she was presenting at the Oscars this year, so so it's just it's shenanigans, <laughs> she, right? She's, she's invited to the party, but she doesn't she doesn't win the prizes. I don't understand. That only makes it more ridiculous. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, when the score gives its awards, we will remember Miss. That's Bassett a good for idea sure. for an uh. uh an episode, the score awards. Oh, yeah. Who has like the it. highest score? Oh, I like that. Oh, look look at us. This is Well, you know, I mean communications. That's what I I brand this. <laughs> well, I also wanted to shout out an incredible black woman doing big things this week. Um, I don't know if you all are familiar with um, India Walton of Buffalo, New York. I Amazing. Can I just tell you about Miss India Walton? <laughs> so this woman got pregnant when she was 14. She get, earned her GED, 
while she was pregnant with twins, then went to nursing school, got her license, became a registered nurse, joined the nursing union, became the representative from her nursing union, then became the director of a community land trust. She decided... You know what? After all of this like nonsense with this four-term <laughs> Byron Brown, I think his name is, um, four-term incumbent mayor of Buffalo, pro-police, watching that that mm-hmm. elderly man yeah, get God. pushed down, get his yeah. head cracked open during mm-hmm. the protests last summer, and said like, "Oh, this is fine." <laughs> she said, "You know what?" Uh uh-uh. uh, no. we're not doing this anymore. <laughs> Threw her hat in the ring, openly proud socialist. I love that. And won the Democratic primary last night. Beat this four-term incumbent. <laughs> this woman who beat all of the odds and just achieved, 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 and shined, and showed out for her community. And now, you know, obviously, like there's still a general election. But, you know, Buffalo is pretty democratic, mm-hmm. so it looks like, you know, I don't feel uncomfortable calling her, you know, Mayor Walton. Mayor-elect <laughs> Walton. <laughs> yes. But I just think it's so, and especially as somebody who, you know, grew up, you know, in D.C. with parents around politics, who is who looks at the system and keeps saying, like, gosh, like, if we could just have, like, sane people, you know, <laughs> sort of toppling like these wealthy sociopaths who just continue to get elected whoever is just the loudest and the meanest and the craziest Mm -hmm. like somebody who is just like a nice normal person who knows what Mm -hmm. it is to struggle in this this country who knows what it takes to achieve what it is that you believe in and to take care of your community and to take care of your family and to take care of yourself. Like, I just hope that this serves as an inspiration (laughs) to more of us to get out there that like, even if like, you know, oh, they're going to like run some smear campaign against you or they're going to like, you know, say that you're unqualified because you don't have this degree or you don't Mm -hmm. have, you know, this qualification or you don't have, you know, the money that you just go out there and you just, you can do it. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and we need you. Yeah. We need you yeah. um, to, to, to save us all from just this insanity. So yeah. I just want to shout out India Walton because she's just an inspiration to me. And I just, I just think that story is just so incredible. So, yay. Congratulations, <laughs> Mayor. Congrats. <laughs> That's amazing. It reminds me of um, there is a black man running for governor of Arkansas, mm. also mm. whose mm-hmm. um, campaign video I just watched and it was excellent. I was just <laughs> like, if this doesn't do it, <laughs> and, and running I don't against know what y'all are on, but and running out. against Sarah Huckabee Sanders, no less. So. Oh, yeah, yeah, interesting. So, yeah. Wait, uh, <laughs> I, I'm going to go out. <laughs> <laughs> I also had so, to shout him out because he's where, from where my mother's side of the family is from. Like, uh, I was looking at the town names and stuff in his um, in his uh, campaign video, and it's literally all the places my ancestors are from. <laughs> the different counties, different cities, all in Arkansas. So I'm just like, we might be kinfolk. Yes! 
yes, I'm definitely supporting you. <laughs> well, we will find out, you know, exactly what his name is and, and where to donate. Chris Jones. Um, Chris Jones. Chris, Chris Jones. Jones. Chris oh, another Jones. Jones. Okay. Hey, maybe, maybe <laughs> my, cousin. Like too. <laughs> my cousin. My <laughs> cousin. Chris Jones. He's also Jones. a nuclear engineer. Is oh. he really? Yes. Oh, Part of his God. video is all about like mending like or bringing together his science background, but also faith, because I think he might be a minister or something, too. And, you know, using technology to create opportunities for everyone and into the future, but with a quality kind of message. I, I'm with it. Okay. Shout out to all well, you black people running for office. Chris Jones. You <laughs> <We> are courageous. <laughs> Dang. You know, as a kid, we went to church for a while with Lawrence Douglas Wilder, who is the first black person elected governor mm-hmm. of any state. Mm-hmm. Um, uh-huh. And it made a huge impact on me, like in third grade, meeting yeah. him, knowing who he was. And it changes yep. how people see themselves and what they think of as possible. So I'm excited mm-hmm. about Mr. Jones, about Mayor like Walton. Um, it's it's an exciting time. Send right? a send a prayer up for Maya Wiley in New York City. Oh yes, <laughs> uh, oh, yeah, a prayer and you know thirty forty thousand votes. Yeah. And that, and that. <laughs> <laughs> Say your prayers, light your candles, do what you have to do. Well, and I think that's gonna do it for this week. Uh, thank you so much to our wonderful guest. Thank you so much to the two of you, as mm-hmm. always. Um, and thanks to all of you out there for listening. As usual, please, 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 please leave a review. Leave <laughs> us a five-star rating. We want to get out there to more people. Um, share this with, you know, any friends, family, um, folks that, you know, love to hear, you know, Black people talk mess. <laughs> and uh, we will, uh, and, and like I said before, um, you know, contact us at um, the score at mnopera.org. And we want to hear from you. Um, you know, questions, comments, concerns, just uh, write in and let us know. And we might just uh, read your letter out on the air. So I think that's about it. And we'll see you in two weeks. All right. Bye, y'all. Bye, everybody. Bye.